Hey guys, welcome to the show. Before we begin, I'd like to let you know that you can find us on Twitter at ickgaw, that's I-C-G-A-W. You can also email us at ickgawpod at gmail.com. Today we'll be talking about Jeff Skinner, who isn't talking about Jeff Skinner these days, and a question that was emailed in, so please feel free to shoot him in and join the conversation, and tell your friends to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. All right, here we go. my friends. Welcome to It Can't Get Any Worse, America's Worst Podcast for America's Worst Hockey Team. I'm your host, Jay, and on today's show, we're going to be discussing the latest issues with Eugene Melnick in Ottawa in our What Are You Reading section. In part two, we'll be recapping the Sabres' last few fixtures as they went 1-1-1 against the Sharks, Bolts, and Panthers. And we'll be looking ahead to the Preds, Leafs, and Flyers in part three, where we'll also finish the show talking about what's going on down the road in Rochester, around town in the league, and we'll be opening up a mailbag with a question from one of your fellow listeners. If you enjoy the show, we would so appreciate it if you would like and subscribe and drop us a five-star review on iTunes. We so appreciate the support and kind words. Here we go on to part one with What Are You Reading? So this article comes from the Canada National Post, and we referenced it last week when we were talking about what was going on around town in the league, particularly with the Ottawa Senators, and it concerns their stadium. Here is our headline. Field of Broken Dreams, the inside story of how Ottawa's $4 billion landmark development deal fell to pieces. On Friday, and this is last Friday, mind you, this article is about a week old, Eugene Melnick dropped a bombshell, suing his partners in the LeBreton Flats project, which has been called, quote, one of the most exciting projects in the city's recent history. This is from November 23rd. It's from authors Adrian Humphreys and Barbara Schechter. And the article, as I'm sure you can probably gather from the title and what you've heard so far, concerns the construction of Ottawa's new stadium that had been in the plans for the last several years. And the woes of the Senators are well-documented on and off the ice. They had a horrendous season last season. They had possibly an even more horrendous offseason. They're plagued with issues with their owner, with making comments like he's not afraid to move the team if attendance doesn't improve, making really awkward videos with Mark Borowicki in the offseason. They've had issues with the players, um, particularly their players' significant others, making threats against other players on the ice. They've had that whole incident with the whole Uber uh, video incident in Arizona a few weeks ago with some of their players, and they've had issues with the fans obviously being very disgruntled with this. One of these issues involves the stadium, and Gary Bettman is actually on the record saying that this stadium and this stadium project is vital for the franchise going forward. So this article and this issue really concerns two major players, Eugene Melnick, the owner of the Senators, and John Ruddy, who's a prominent local real estate developer. And the article opens by referencing a public meeting this past August between Ruddy, Melnick, and the Ottawa mayor. And the meeting seemed to be designed 
to be a public meeting to calm the public as issues related to the stadium seemed to be escalating and the fans and the citizens of Ottawa were getting nervous that things weren't going to get done. And unfortunately, those predictions seemed to be correct. The stadium was planned to be built in what is known as the LeBreton Flats. And the authors state that, quote, several blocks west of Parliament Hill, past the Bank of Canada and the Supreme Court, and across the Canadian War Museum, LeBreton Flats sits empty. It is a 21-hectare expense not far from the shore of the Ottawa River. And for decades, it has been the subject of ambition for those frustrated that Ottawa sometimes feels more like the sleepy timber town it was at its founding than the modern capital of a G7 nation. Ruddy and Melnick, uh, sorry, Ruddy and Melnick have been partners in this bid that won the chance to develop the flats in this area that is apparently very much in need of development. So here is the chance to help several aspects of the city. New stadium for the Senators, development of real estate in the Canada's, in Canada's capital, development of an area that's particularly in need of development. And the authors Humphreys and Schechter state that the meeting in August ended with, quote, smiles, handshakes in the right words, with the Ottawa mayor saying that shovels should be in the ground as soon as possible. And from there, while there were concerns before that meeting, everything has gone up in proverbial flames. Here's our quote. On Thursday, at a meeting of the National Capital Commission, the Crown Corporation responsible for planning and stewarding the capital region, it was finally revealed publicly what deep trouble the LeBreton Flats redevelopment deal was in. The NCC's chief executive officer, Mark Christensen, announced Malnix and Ruddy's companies had both informed them they had, quote, unresolved issues and were unable to close a partnership agreement. The NCC, Christmanson assured the public before even breaking the news, had pulled out all the stops to move the redevelopment forward over four years. We are disappointed, he said. Reluctant to kill the project then and there, however, the NCC board voted to give the two partners until January to, quote, get their act together, as the mayor put it. Failing that, the NCC gave itself the option to start the process all over again. That does not seem likely we should butt in here as Melnick came out of left field on Friday and sued Ruddy and his partners, claiming issues of uh, political interference, conflict of interest, and betrayal. Ruddy has since denied these claims. Quote, Through legal findings as well as insider accounts from behind the scenes and previously unreleased documents reviewed by the National Post, a picture is emerging of how the monumental deal fell to pieces a story that blends high-stakes business and politics against the backdrop of two pillars of Canada's identity, the nation's capital and the national game. So from here, the article goes back to the beginnings of the quest to build a new stadium. And the Senators, it notes, are one of the only NHL teams who still play in the suburbs outside of the city whose name they wear. Melnick was obviously very interested in developing a new stadium, but During part of this process, he became very ill and would eventually need a liver transplant, so he assembled a team that spoke with several builders. One of those was John Ruddy, and it was a good fit. Ruddy has a history in the area and a specific history in real estate in the area, which Melnick does not, and Ruddy seems to be very well liked in the area, and Melnick definitely is not. 
and they set off on their mission to build a world-class facility that would make Ottawa a suitable face for the great country of Canada. And Ruddy and his company, called the Trinity Development Group, would be one of the allies in Melnick's, Melnick's quest for a new stadium. But here is the main issue with Ruddy that comes up. He was also simultaneously developing a property called 900 Albert, which lies very close to the LeBreton Flats, the site of the deal that Malnick and Ruddy were trying to develop for the Senator Stadium. So as their relationship has soured over the years, the possible conflict of interest has become a talking point for the stadium. The 900 Albert project has grown and has become bigger and literally taller in terms of the building size than Ruddy ever disclosed before the starting of the project. And so Melnick is now very frustrated with this. Here, back to a quote. Melnick alleges in his lawsuit that Trinity was working behind his back to push and finance 900 Alberta at LeBreton's expense. The joint venture failed because of an egregious conflict of interest on the part of Trinity and its principal, John Ruddy, that ought to have been identified to Melnick's group and resolved, but instead only worsened over time. The experts told us 900 Albert would have a devastating financial impact on LeBreton, Melnick said. We repeatedly raised this issue with Trinity, the NCC, and city officials. Obviously, when you're trying to build a world-class facility to be the face of Ottawa, it doesn't help Melnick if you if someone else is building an even more world-class development across the street, and it really, really doesn't help if that guy is your partner in your own business venture. Back to our quotes, the allegations in the lawsuit not yet tested in court make it difficult to believe Melnick and Ruddy will jointly put a ceremonial shovel in the ground at LeBreton Flats let alone erect a glittering arena and retail and condo palace. Melnick confirmed as much to The Post, the newspaper this article is in. As an organization, we just didn't have the confidence and the comfort that we would actually be building a viable product for the city at LeBreton, instead of a white elephant. In a statement Friday, Ruddy was equally forceful. Trinity strongly denies the allegations in Melnick's lawsuit and intends to vigorously defend the claim. For over 30 years, I have sought to make a contribution to the communities in which Trinity operates, and in particular, my hometown of Ottawa. I will always find ways to build Ottawa up and continue to make a contribution to our great city. So it should be said that the Senators are still kicking, they're still alive as an NHL franchise, and they're doing okay this season, but while this won't kill them now, it's entirely possible that a year from now, we will look at this legal case and failed business venture as one of the reasons why the Senators disappeared. And so their current on-ice product has well-documented concerns. They, We talked last week, they were one of the fastest teams in recent history to concede 100 goals in a season. Two of their best players are unrestricted free agents at the end of the season in Matt Duchesne and Mark Stone. And you have to think if GM Pierre Dorian doesn't get the moves right for that one, either in re-signing them or pitching for pitching them for assets that will help them immediately and in the future, it could have catastrophic repercussions for the future of that team. That Matt Duchesne trade in particular continues to hurt them over and over again in that they don't have their first round pick at the end of this season. But off the ice, 
things get a little more concerning. They are ranked 27th out of 31 teams in average attendance. And Pierre, I'm sorry, I wrote Pierre Dorian here. And Eugene Melnick has openly stated that he isn't afraid to move the team if attendance doesn't improve. This is an owner who is not in tune with proper PR tactics or just tact in general, as seen from that super weird video he released sitting next to Mark Borowiecki in the offseason where he actually openly referred to the team as, quote, a bit of a fire right now. And so this team needs a new stadium. They need to get into the city. They need something that the fan base in the city can get excited about. And here was a chance for them to get one that now seems totally impossible. And so here's the question I kind of have as a result of this. Did Malnick actually not like this deal and how things were going with John Ruddy and the Trinity organization? Or was he looking for an excuse to either move the team or sell the team? And to do that, he needed to pull the plug on this deal. The NHL did have to deny that Malnick was trying to sell the team this summer. There might have been some movement there in his decision to try to move on from this team. Obviously, investing massively in a stadium for a team you're trying to sell doesn't make a lot of sense, and maybe this whole deal is Melnick trying to pull the plug and get out. I will tweet the link to this article. It's a rather long affair, and there's a lot more to unpack in here. It's very well written. It's very comprehensive. I would highly encourage you guys to check it out. But here is just, I mean, we could talk all day about the on-ice issues with the Ottawa Senators, but this is a team that's really in trouble. And if if there's one person you really want on board when your team is in trouble, it's your owner. And I don't think anyone including Eugene Melnick, can definitively state where Melnick stands in terms of the future for the Ottawa Senators. That's it for What Are You Reading? I'll tweet out that link. Join us in part two, where we'll be looking at our games against the Sharks, Bolts, and Panthers. See you guys in a second. All right, moving on to part two, where we'll be talking about our last three fixtures. And on Tuesday night, the Buffalo Sabres welcomed the San Jose Sharks to town. And it was the Hockey Fights Cancer Night in Buffalo. Game started off with an amazingly touching video and such an incredible emotional night that ended with an incredible emotional discussion from Brian Duff after the game where he became really emotional and teared up while discussing Nate Beaulieu's time spent with a Buffalo cancer patient at the Roswell Cancer Center. It was just, it was a wonderful evening, regardless of the product on the ice. And I love that the NHL continues to push these events over and over again for such an excellent cause, especially with things like the Roswell Cancer Center in Buffalo and the Wilmot Cancer Center in Rochester. Just an excellent event to keep pushing through. In terms of team news, uh, Connor Sherry didn't morning uh, didn't participate in the morning skate, and that'll be a common theme as we'll talk about throughout this episode. Bogosian was limited in that skating, but he was good to play. Berglund was still out for this one, as was Scandella, which was related to that ankle shot he took a couple games prior. Lawrence Pilot was called up, but Botterill openly announced that he was not going to play and that it was just precautionary. Other moves of note is that Tage Thompson went back to the line with Casey Middlestat, and Zemgus Giergensens came in to officially replace Sherry, but he was on the fourth line with Remy Eli and Johan Larson. 
Carter Hutton was a net. Uh, Marty Jones was a net for the Sharks. The Sharks are coming into this one having been blown out by Vegas 6 nothing on Saturday, and they played like it for the first five minutes. It was hard, and it was fast. McCabe and Meyer, to kind of illustrate how this the, the opening couple of minutes of this, had a hard hit on the blue line that sent Meyer back to the bench as a little bit of McCabe's helmet caught the young Swiss's cheek. Even McCabe looked kind of dazed from that one. It was, just, it was hard. It was fast. It was a little bit sloppy. Really the best chance for the Sabres in the first 10 minutes. Saw Casey Middlestat win a chase to the corner and then bring it out front for Ocposo, who was coming in, but Brent Burns was right there to frantically mop it up. Pavelski also drew a great save from Hutton in the first 10. And Sam really gets the best chance of the second 10. It was some great play from the top line who were buzzing around this period. See Sam come across the front and backhand one right into Jones. Unfortunately, Sorensen got robbed uh, right out in front of Carter Hutton. We got our first call a cop of the evening. RJ, if you've never called a cop, call one now. No goals in this first period, but it was largely a really fun event. It was fast. It was physical. There were huge hits from McCabe, Risto, Eric Carlson. Fun things. No goals. Shots were 13-6 in favor of the Sharks this season, but it really didn't look like it on the balance of play. Into the second, the Sabres have to kill one early on as Erod goes to the box. Sabres have killed off 24 out of 26 up to that point. And that leaves them, or sorry, that left them with the fifth best penalty kill going into this one. They kill this one successfully. They pad up their stats and they turn that into some pretty strong play. But they're still sloppy, um, either in their final passes or in their shots when they finally do make good opportunities. They end up on the power play 10 minutes in. And the A team works Jones a few times. B team struggles to get into the zone and it's killed. Goes a little bit flat for a few minutes till a corner scrum gets away from Ocposo. He sends Thompson in at the boards uh, past the circle who picks out Risto across the ice with this fantastic saucer pass. Sends him going down the left-hand side. Risto fakes a shot inside and then plays it through his own legs to get by Burns on the outside. Goes across the front and scores. That's maybe the best individual goal or individual effort goal we've seen all season. He has just the goofiest kind of moonwalk and stick-twisting item. They interviewed Rasmus Dahlin on uh, Risto's scoring after the game. He said, it was one of the coolest goals I've ever seen. And then they ask him about the celebration. He says, I don't know what he was doing. It was like a forward moonwalk right here. Yeah, sick goal, horrible celly. And that definitely woke the game back up. Hutton draws a great save. The Sabres come around and work Jones two or three times. Hutton returns at the show with some good glove saves. And again, it's not pretty, it's not crisp, but it's fast and it's frantic. And the only difference between this one and the first is that courtesy of an amazing world-class Risto goal, the Sabres are ahead on this one. Into the third, the Sabres have to kill a Darlene penalty early on as he tripped Donskoy on his way to the net. They have a pretty steady kill, and that actually sees the better chance of the play fall to Sabatka on the other end. Sabres kill, and Nelson plays Reinhardt in over the line. Beaulieu is flying in and calls for the puck as he crosses the circles. Reinhardt sauces it to him. Beaulieu lifts it, and it's 2-0 five minutes into the third. Thornton and Larson actually go to the box 10 minutes in. Thornton gave him a bump that wasn't necessarily needed as Larry cleared it, and Larry pushed him back. We play four on four for a bit, and right off the faceoff, Bogo draws a great save on Jones. Right at the end of it, they make... 
it very interesting. Burns sauces ones through Sapodka's legs to Pavelski on the far side. He rips it past Hutton, and it's 2-1 with eight minutes left. Sharks take cha- uh, take the change of momentum and get a power play opportunity four minutes left. Erod goes for hooking. They capitalize as Pavelski gets an opportunistic wraparound, and things get a little dicey. 2-2 with three minutes left. And San Jose gets two third-period goals to tie it. A rough third period, but the Sabres turn it up and finish on a positive note as they guarantee themselves a point going into overtime. In overtime, they roll out Eichel, Reinhardt, and Darlene against Hurdle, Couture, and Carlson. And the Sabres in this one create all the best chances, mostly in transition. Eichel and Risto get a few good shots early on. A few minutes in, Darlene makes a world-class play, diving back in to back-check Eric Carlson on the back end. And seconds later, he wins a bit of a puck battle by playing the puck behind himself and around Eric Carlson to go to the net. The battle is continuing towards the net, and it doesn't look like Darlene's going to win it, but Marty Jones comes out to punch it clear, fails to do so that effectively, It falls to Skinner, who comes in, fakes inside, goes outside, and backhands the OT winner for the franchise-tying 10th win in a row. Three points. This team is deeper, but not deep enough to be better without Connor Sherry. And we picked him out for the small stock, or sorry, a small stock down last week, but his role and the roles he fills are particularly important with playing on the second line, playing in the second power play line, playing in the top line typically for OT environments, and a team that has Zemgis Girgensons, Joan Larson, Remy Eli, Evan Rodriguez, and Sabatka in it is a team that's just a tad lacking in specialists, in my opinion. Five grafters means that you kind of have your team lacking in an offensive threat. And, I mean, maybe illustrating that is that he was on the ice for the winner, and he actually did look pretty good. But Sabatka had to come out there for an overtime appearance, and I don't know that he's necessarily the kind of guy you want out there playing in an overtime situation three-on-three. Point two, the Reinhardt streak stat was getting a little insane by the end of this game. The Sabres, at the end of this one, were 12-0-0 when Sam records a point in a game. And he did assist Beaulieu's goal in this one, and the Sabres, as we know, won. That stat is kind of insane, but I I hearken back to every time this stat was brought up to the idea that, like, I don't think it's that insane to see that the Sabres are better when one of their better players contribute. I mean, it is still a little bit fluky of a stat, but I mean, I think this whole 10-game run, as we'll discuss, was a little bit fluky, and it did come to an end with the Tampa game, as Sam Reinhart, I believe, scored and assisted, as we'll talk about in that game, and they did lose that game, but Sam Reinhart, I mean, he's on a, he's on pace for what might be a career season. He has, looking it up, six goals, 15 assists for 21 points through 27 games this season. His career high was last season with 25 goals and 25 points. So I think that might suggest he might be a tad off the pace in goals, but he's certainly contributing in other ways so far this season. Interested to see what he can carry on with throughout the rest of this season. Point three, Darlene is slowly becoming the number one defenseman of this team. He's rolling out in more offensive roles. He's getting more opportunities. He was rolled out in this OT line against the Sharks. 
And really, I think the most significant stat of this one is that this was the first game of the season in which Darlene outplayed Rasmus Ristolainen in ice time. Darlene had 24 minutes and 12 seconds to Risto's 21 minutes and 48 seconds against the Sharks. If you go back as far as you can, Risto is almost always the ice time leader for the team, and he's always above Darlene by several minutes. And here's Darlene coming above Risto by several minutes in this case. And then if you want to talk statistics very particularly, talk about Darlene's Corsi 4 percentage. He has a 58.2 on the season to Risto's 46.7. Suggesting, and I don't think we necessarily needed this stat to know this, that Darlene is a much more effective offensive player than Rasmus Ristolainen. Darlene was named the NHL Rookie of the Month for November, where I believe he had 10 points. And we do have to talk about Has he been amazing? No, but he's been as advertised in many departments. In the aspects where he's not been amazing, particularly on the defensive end, as we keep bringing up, you can kind of look at it, shrug, and mumble something about his being 18. Like, tell me how good was Eric Carlson when he was 18? How good was Drew Doughty when he was 18? How good was Victor Hedman when he was 18? Particularly on a defensive standpoint. Show me what they were capable of doing and compare it to Rasmus Dahlin and then tell me how upset you are about how he's been defensively error-prone so far this season. Going forward, he has been nothing short of fantastic, especially considering, again, for an 18-year-old defenseman. Still things to work on, but he's slowly growing into more and more of a role in this team. From that point on, the Sabres began their away trip traveling to Tampa on Thursday, and Tampa came into this one having lost to the Ducks on Tuesday, thanks to our old pal Ryan Miller. And Lawrence Pilot was involved in the morning skate here, as well as Berglund and Matt Hunwick. And that's a bit of a surprise so far this season. His agent said this week that they had hoped he could start playing after Christmas. Matt Hunwick had kind of a weird circumstance in that the Sabres acquired him and he was immediately out indefinitely with a neck injury. And I actually started thinking that he was possibly more of permanently injured when he was traded. And that was why the Sherry deal was so good. But it turns out that the injury was post-trade and the projection had originally been much worse that he would not play all season. So good news here that he's back on the ice, that he might be able to contribute in a game sometime after Christmas. What will he bring to the team? Who knows? He can't really be any worse than Marco Scandella, who coincidentally was not on the ice for the morning skate either, and neither is Connor Sherry. But I don't necessarily know what Matt Hunwick brings to this team that isn't already here. I am interested to see, however. Same lineup relatively as last night. It is Hutton in goal again, and they face Louis Domingue in net on the opposite side. The opening minutes of this one in the first period were totally frantic, and the Bolts capitalize. At one point, Hutton loses his stick, and Girardi gets a free rebound on his close-range shot. He's able to somewhat lift it over Hutton's pad three minutes in. The Bolts are fast on this play, but Eli and Larson were just totally pedestrian, especially with Girardi's two free looks at the net that both of them were kind of left watching. Minutes later, Tage Thompson got a pretty hard hip check into Girardi, who goes down holding his knee. We were hoping he would be okay soon. It wasn't a dirty hit, and TT did everything pretty fairly. It was just hard and a little awkward, and I'd like to think, like, Tate. 
Tage Thompson doesn't do that stuff that often. And even though it was legal, I kind of get the sense that he didn't mean to hit him that hard anyway. Girardi did return later in the game, which was good to see. A few minutes later, after some great work from the fourth line, as Remy, uh, Remy Eli and Johan Larson go to work along the boards, they end up playing a little bit of exchange and pitching it to Risto, who blasts it from the line off the post and in. Upon review, it's actually awarded to Girgensons as it went off his leg as he was leaping away, and it's 1-1-8-45 in. Right from the drop, the top line goes to work and starts getting some better efforts on Deming. Great pressure from Skinner and Jack gets Reinhardt set up out in front. He puts it on net and hits the blocker. The puck lifts right over Deming's head and goes into the goal. Two goals in a minute to turn it around to a 2-1. Bolts come right back and on some pressure get Hutton worked and coming out to meet the puck. He blocks an attempt from JT Miller, who was hooked by somebody going across the front of the net, but it doesn't matter about the penalty because the puck falls to Kaloran, who buries it 2-2. It's frantic afterwards, continuing the theme of the game, and the Sabres are continuing to struggle defensively. Bolu draws a hooking call on JT Miller, and the Sabres take the draw, and Eichel pushes McDonough into the boards for a boarding call, and you gotta say he's lucky just to get two minutes for boarding, and he's lucky he's probably still in the game. It was not dirty. McDonough lost his balance, but it was dangerous, and it was hard. And McDonough went to the locker room, and that's two Tampa defensemen hurt in the opening 12 minutes. We play some four-on-four for a bit, and thankfully for the Tampa Bay defenseman and for Dan Girardi, Girardi returns just as the period of play ends. But shortly afterwards, it's noticed that Jake McCabe is not on the bench. About 16 minutes into the game, Darlene pinches up to take some possession in the corner, and it goes right over him. Uh, Braden Point is coming across the line with Kucherov and Tyler Johnson on a three-on-one. Point hits Kucherov, who risks a beauty over Hutton's shoulder, and it's 3-2. Bogo took a hit towards the end of this period, and all hell just broke loose. It's Paquette and Beaulieu and just about everybody else going at it somewhere to end the period, something for the refs to sort out before the second. But overall, there's just a lot this period. The Lightning were fast, and it was hard, and it was brutal the entire period. The game really, as many pundits tended to talk about throughout this one, had a bit of a playoff feel to it in this opening few minutes, and this was really good experience for the Sabres, as we'll talk about. Into the second, it's assessed that for the next period that Bogo gets two for cross-checking. That was before the whole scrum, actually, that he cross-checked someone. But Bolu gets a 10-minute misconduct, and there's nothing put the other way for the Lightning, which you got to say is a little bit of BS. They were definitely not innocent in that interaction to end the period. Better news, McCabe came back to the bench, and while they are on the PK and it's been very good, Lately, they do have to go to work. Risto took a Stamkos blast to the side of the shin. He went down like a hefty bag of vegetable soup. He's okay, thank goodness, because we had some bad news right afterward. McCabe was gone almost immediately after he came back, and it looked like we were going to see Pilot the next day. Six minutes into the period, Jack weaves into the offensive zone and goes to the side. He fizzes an incredible backhand pass to Sam, who stops on the back end. The puck hits his skate and goes in 3-3. Penalty aside, the Sabres have looked much better, but Miller rocked the post shortly afterwards and the craziness continues. Larson got popped on a high sticking call and Miller bleeds, so it's four minutes and a key member of the penalty kill sitting out. 
They have to dip into the Jacks and Sams of the world to kill this one. They got a great break, though, as Matthew Joseph missed a wide-open net early on. Jack makes a great play at one point, and they hold the Bolts to only one of two shot, or one or two shots on the entire four-minute kill. It was a great display. On that, you had to say that this period really mellowed out. The Sabres have taken the momentum away, and even if they've had to kill six minutes of penalty on their way to doing it, they look like they are starting to grow back into the game, and they signal that as Bogo rocked the post from the point, and the Sabres ultimately win the second period. They're outshot 25-12 to overall in the game so far, but they're there. Into the third, they start the third with just some great play. They're getting some pucks to the net. They're having some good transitions. On one of them, Casey goes over the line, flips it on Deming, who hasn't looked assured all game. He takes the bit of a soft rebound, takes it behind the net, and re-enters the center of the ice. He leaves it for TT, who tries his toe drag for the 17th time this season. But this time it works. He navigates around the defender and snaps it five-hole on Deming. It's 4-3, two and a half minutes in, and it's four goals in the last six games for Tage Thompson. Bolts try to turn the balance of play, and Larry gets nailed on a tripping call four minutes in. Sabres PK is trying to flex its muscles here again, and here we go, but never mind. Stamkos one-timer just a few seconds in. You can't give him those kinds of opportunities. You could maybe look at Carter Hutton. He left a bit of room in the near post coming over, but it's still a Stamkos slap shot, and I really don't want to get that critical of anyone here. With 14.34 remaining, the Sabres are looking to respond, and Erod draws an interference call on Kalorn. It's the Sabres' first real power play opportunity of the game. They roll out Skinner, Eichel, Sam, um, and who am I missing here? Akposo and Ristolainen, but it's nothing but absolutely sloppy. They spend most of their time trying to get the puck into their own zone, and they really surrender more good chances to the Bolts than they actually created as they were getting the, the crap forechecked out of them. It certainly wasn't it. Still, that power play does signal a shift in momentum. Tage Thompson, Casey Middlestat, and Kyle Ocposo got a long stretch of possession in the zone with some good chances, but they can't capitalize. And the game is there for the taking, but nobody's manufacturing a grade-A chance, and they're drawing some okay saves out of Deming, but this was their opportunity to take control of the game, and they're not taking it. Bit of a warning shot as Kucherov hit the post, and shortly afterwards, Sergachev comes back into the zone and drops it for Paquette. Hutton is screened a little bit by Pominville, and Paquette's shot goes over his shoulder, and it's 5-4 with a few minutes left. Sabres pull Hutton with a couple minutes, and there's a heart stopper as Reinhardt slips and loses possession. Sabres recover and also survive Girardi missing an open netter. Halsey calls a timeout on an icing with 34 seconds left. It's ultimately not an impressive push for an equalizer, and it looks kind of the whole thing kind of just looks like that failed power play opportunity a few minutes before. They're unable to capitalize anything, and it ends 5 4. Three points. It's disappointing, but it's a palatable loss. The Bolts are just so freaking good, and the way that they've been able to balance their vets and younger players and salary cap limits is so impressive. And they are hands down the best team in the East from back to front. Also, add in the fact that the Sabres were missing Sherry, Scandella, and Berglund, three important pieces in their own various roles of the 10 straight wins. And you could maybe buy back a little bit of real estate on your disappointment here. But ultimately, it is disappointing, as you thought there were several chances for the Sabres to take that game in the third period. 
and they certainly could have played better in other portions of this one. I'm not going to lambast them for it. They were minutes away from winning this game. They were minutes away from getting a point out of this game. And ultimately, this is a game that they can learn from. They won't face many better teams and more complete teams this season. And this was one where they got the experience of facing a team that was in their face for 60 minutes and is capable of punishing them at every misstep, of which there were many. And they need this experience. And I might argue that they maybe needed this losing streak to end. They need this losing streak experience as we'll talk about in point two get disappointed from losing a big game and learn to bounce back and they played again in less than 24 hours they had to turn around and come back here point two the streak ends at 10 games and I'm going to argue that it's maybe a good thing let's get the pressure of that streak off their back so they can address the fact that the Sabres were not that good during this streak was it a lot of fun yes Is it amazing to watch this team again? Yes. Did the last three weeks remind Western New York what it's like to believe in a franchise again? Yes. Is this team heading in positive directions? Certainly looks like it. Is this team a playoff qualifying team? Maybe. Possibly even probably. Did this team deserve to win 10 games in a row? Absolutely not. There was luck in there. There were bounces in there. There were absolute acts of God in there. Some Parts of that are just how this sport is. But I have to say that it's about time that the Sabres are punished for their mistakes and their turnovers. And listening to their post-game interviews, they were very open and honest about how they felt that they had made too many mistakes against a team that is too good, and they weren't clean enough to win this game. This time they were punished, and we are now no longer distracted away from these mistakes by the fact that they won the game anyway and are on a great streak. It's time to get back to work. It's time to address these issues. Sometimes those issues don't bite you, and sometimes they don't bite you for 10 games in a row. This time they did. It's time for them to address them. Point three, this was somewhere between Darlene's worst and second worst game. It's probably tied with that Penguins game where he was on the ice and pretty much directly responsible for four goals conceded. And in this one, he had a lot that he could have done better defensively. He pinched up and overplayed on the three-on-one that led to Kucherov's goal. He had some bad turnovers, and he lacked a crispness to his play that we've seen recently. And this got particularly worse as the game went on. And not in a point where we're going to get overly critical again, like we talked about before. He's 18. But also, especially considering that McCabe was injured for more than half of this game, Bolu was out for 10 minutes with his game misconduct, Darlene had to have massively increased ice time on his already heavy load with cycled line mates throughout the entire game. That can't be easy for any player, let alone an 18-year-old rookie. He's still learning, and only a few nights ago we were singing his praises left and right about the Sharks game. We can press on from this, but here's another game against, or here's another game where things didn't exactly go the Sabres way for large periods of the game, and you can kind of point at Rasmus Dahlin being on the ice as one of the common denominators in that item. Not saying it's exclusively his fault, but here are these facets of his game that really we would like to see develop. Sabres have to go to a back-to-back as they play the Panthers on Friday, and some news for the lineup on this one was that Scandella is placed on IR, and McCabe is iffy the morning of. Sabres did call up Matt Tennyson, who's really yet to play meaningful minutes for either club this season. I actually don't think he's made much of an appearance even for the Amherst. 
Lines roll out mostly the same, although we do see Berglund return for Eli, and Pilot comes in in, face of, in place of McCabe to make his NHL debut, and it's Allmark in net. Now, full disclosure here, I did miss most of this game as I went to the Amherst game Friday night to watch the first two periods. As we'll talk about in a second, that was a total mistake, um, but we're just going to go off highlights on this one and then talk some three points for the first couple of periods. Um, first period, Panthers struggles this season are well documented and their stadium for a Saturday night divisional rival game is so empty. The broadcast is constantly showing swaths of Sabres fans. And that's kind of sad for a team that was supposedly supposed to be making their next steps this season. Into the game, about 10 minutes in, Eichel strips the puck in the defensive zone, and he sets Reinhardt going down along the boards, two-on-one with Skinner. Reinhardt squares, and Skinner rips it over James Reiner for a one-goal advantage early on. It's the 20th goal of the season for Jeff Skinner, his 14th point, or sorry, Sam Reinhardt's 14th point in 14 games. And John Vogel tweeted something kind of interesting. Jeff Skinner has 20 goals in 27 games. Tyler Ennis led the 2014-2015 Sabres with 20 goals in 78 games. Towards the end of the first period, uh, Panthers get a power play opportunity, and Jared McCann gets it on the point, and Lutz fly, hits Bogo's stick on the way through, and sends it on a perfect arced flight over Allmark to level the game. Just at the start of the second, on the power play, Eichel comes flying in over the line and squares one to Reinhardt. It takes a huge deflection and ends up around head level, but Sam does so well to hit it just right off the ground as it makes contact with the ground, past Reimer to reclaim the lead. Sabres take their lead into the third, where they're able to withstand some dominant Florida pressure for about 12 minutes, but eventually a rebound on the power play falls to Dadinov, who buries it. We go into overtime, and the Sabres get some good chances, but Florida gets into the zone and makes a great play. Barkov drops below the net and dishes it out to Huberdeau. He then goes back around the other side of the goal where he has lost Jack Eichel. Eichel is scrambling to try to recover, but Barkov gets it back from Huberdeau and lets a one-timer go past Allmark. Sabres take the OT loss to go 17-7-3 on the season. Three points. Point one, Sabres go 1-1-1 one, one, and one for the week. It's disappointing considering the streak that they were coming off of and how, how fanciful the results had been up to this point, but it certainly could have been worse. I mean, they played a really good team in Tampa and lost, and I won't fault them for that. They played a really good team in San Jose and won, and that's obviously something we would applaud. Could have had, I think the, the most disappointing part is that you, you could have had more from both losses, the regulation loss and the overtime loss. They had an opportunity to win that Tampa game or to get back into that Tampa game, and they didn't, and they could have done quite a bit more against this Florida game as we'll talk, or in this Florida game as we'll talk about, but they also could have had nothing from the Florida game with the way that they played. So getting a point in that situation, while disappointing to walk away with only a point against a struggling team, could have been worse. Point two, Lawrence Pilot's debut was decent, but I don't think he showed enough that he should be a full-time Sabre at this point. There's still a lot more for him to learn and focus on. He didn't take a hold of this game in the way that he takes hold of AHL games. That's probably harsh on him as the Sabres seem to struggle to take hold of this game as a team, 
but here we are. I think he should go back down and continue to learn. He's being very successful at the AHL level. Give him a bit more time, as long as injuries allow it, to, for him to stay down there and continue to learn and develop his game. He and Lawrence Pilot, or see, he, Lawrence Pilot and Victor Olofsson seem to be incredible prospects out of the Swedish league. Let them keep learning the small ice down in that environment. We'll see them before the end of the season again, I'm sure. Point three, this team comes back to earth. The team was outshot 43-24 in Florida. They were outshot 37-22 in Tampa. They're outshot, outhit. They had a significant disadvantage in the faceoff circle and other significant stats. Their previously impressive penalty kill couldn't keep the puck out of the net for both of Florida's goals. And like we talked about with the Tampa game, ultimately, maybe this is a good thing. It's time for this team to realistically take stock of where it is. It's time for them to address their defensive frailties and their struggle for anyone other than the top line to generate meaningful offense on a regular basis. They are in the middle of a hard run of games, and I think the reality we have to face is things might get worse before they get better. But it's time. It's time to make some changes. It's time to go back to work. It's possibly time for Botterill to make a quick trade to tweak some things and try to further beef up that bottom six or maybe even the top six. And let's sit here and honestly assess that win streak. And when you do that, it becomes clear that they were not that good over the last 10 games, as we've talked about. They had to they've set themselves up with too much work to do. How many of those games did they actually grab the game by the neck and own it the entire game. I don't know that there are necessarily any other than the one that comes to mind is that Flyers game where they put up four goals in the first period. Other than that, they were hard fought. They were difficult. And they were games that largely they would have lost last season, which so it's impressive that they were able to manufacture winning opportunities out of these games. But it's 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 time for us to realize that this team needs to go back to work and work on some of these frailties. They are they are not the top of the NHL standings quality team that we we would obviously hope that they would be. That was a little bit fluky. It's time to address that. Stock up, stock down. It's really hard to do, or last week it was really hard to do stock down after winning nine straight for our last episode. And it's really hard to do stock up after two disappointing games. You can basically pick almost any player who played well in the Sharks game and talk about them. And if you talked about them as if they were in the ascendancy, you'd probably turn around and talk about them completely differently in the next two games. So as I was typing that for the show notes, I immediately thought of Jake McCabe. And, I mean, he played against the Sharks and played pretty well and then was hurt early against Tampa. So that kind of excludes him from criticism for the latter two games. He has been really steady this season and was impressive against the Sharks. I don't think he's ever going to reach the heights that we had hoped for him a few seasons ago. But he and Bogosian have been an excellent presence for the team in the back end. Even though they've both seen a revolving door of partners since the start of the season, they're assured, they're steady, they're solid two-way defensemen. They get up and down the ice. They're able to contribute offensively, but more importantly, they're able to sit back and let guys like Rasmus Ristolainen or Rasmus Dahlin go to work on the offensive end while they mop up in the back. Both of them, really, I would put in a stock-up role at this point. Stock down, I think I just want to talk about the depth of this team. As we talked about with that Sharks game, menacing Connor Sherry drastically lowers the offensive value of this team, which is surprising considering, I mean, he's just a really a second-line player. 
but he plays important roles on the second line of the power play. He plays incredibly important roles in 3v3 situations where he comes out to be that kind of solid two-way defensive-minded forward to play with Jack and Rasmus Dahlin. There isn't really a natural replacement for him in the lineup. Evan Rodriguez is not clinical enough. Tage Thompson is not developed enough. Kyle Poso is not fast enough. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that he's the Sabres' best player, but his roles are important, and the Sabres have missed him while he's been out over these last three games. So hopefully we will see him again very soon. That rounds it out as the Sabres go 1-1-1 one, one, and one on this stretch, and that's it for Part 2. Join us in Part 3 where we, we, uh, blah, blah, words, where we will be previewing the Sabres' next outings, talking about what's going on down the road in Rochester, around town in the league, and opening up our mailbag with questions from the listeners. We'll see you guys in a second. All right, moving on to part three, where we're going to be talking about the Sabres' next three fixtures. And the Sabres round out a very difficult away trip tomorrow night on Monday in Nashville. And Nashville's facing a little bit of an injury bug. It was just announced that Forsberg is going to be out for four to six weeks with an upper body injury. He's their current point leader with 22 points, and he joins P.K. Subban, Kyle Turris, and Victor Arvidsson, who are also injured on the IR. Despite that little bit of an issue with their injuries, they're still the league's best. They added Ryan Hartman last year at the deadline. Their decor is outstanding with Roman Yossi, Matthias Ekholm, and Ryan Ellis, who I think has hockey's best beard, making up an impressive core even without Subban in the lineup. Pecorine has been fantastic. He's got a .935 save average and has only allowed an average of 1.85 goals per game. They are defensively outstanding. They don't give up a lot of great opportunities, and they have the weapons to hurt you on the other end. This is an incredibly hard test to round out a tough away trip, and it's compounded by that by being a back-to-back where the Sabres will face Toronto the next night. And what isn't there to say about Toronto this season. They added Tavares over the summer for seven years at $11.5 million per year. They entered into a long holdout that has finally ended as Al- or William Nylander. Whoops, man, I wish they had Alex Nylander. Can we swap Nylanders? As William Nylander signs a six-year contract worth just under seven per year. They feature possibly the league's best offense with Tavares, Matthews, and Marner who is their current point leader with six goals and 30 assists, Kadri, and now Nylander again in your top six, complementing their excellent young assets of Kasperi Kapanen and Andreas Janssen. The narrative of the season is that their defense has been much maligned for most of this opening stanza of the season, and that was kind of everybody's idea with the Nylander issue. Oh, just trade Nylander to fix the defense and you have a great team. But their defense really is actually serviceable. It's not world-destroying good, but Morgan Riley has been great for them. Jake Gardner mops up when Morgan Riley can't contribute. And guys like Igor Ojaganov and Ron Hainsey have been fine. Is it weaker than their offensive levels? Certainly, but that's not saying much when you look at their talent on the offense. The Leafs beat the Wild 5-4 on Saturday night to top the NHL standings before they will come to town on Tuesday. So this will be an incredibly difficult test for the Sabres facing 
what is probably the two top teams in the league, according to the standings going into this one, after facing Tampa last week. I mean, Tampa, Toronto, Nashville in one week is maybe the hardest fixture list you're going to have the entire season. Sabres do get a couple days off after that, and they'll face the Flyers again in a 1 p.m. matinee on Saturday. And the biggest news for the Flyers is that they have fired Ron Hextall as GM. That's kind of an interesting move at this point in the season. And their announcement states that there were significant differences in the direction that they had in mind for their franchise. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but if we're reading between the lines, I think it means that either the owners wanted something to happen and Hextall didn't and wanted to stay the course, or it means that Hextall wanted to blow something up and the ownership didn't. I think it's probably the former. They're a loaded team whose main weakness that we talked about the last few weeks ago is goaltending. This new GM has to be ready to get something there. They waived Pickard, who was grabbed on waivers by Arizona. The guys in the Steve Dangle podcast talked about how they have their prospect, Carter Hart, who seems to be pretty incredible, but he's 20 and it's just not time yet. They, they need to get somebody in, in goal, if this team is going to do anything in this current window that they're in. They're good. They have a really good team. They just can't stop anything. And their current guys in the book include Anthony Stolarz, who's conceded eight goals in three games, and Michael Neuverth, who has conceded six goals in one game against the Islanders. Brian Elliott is currently injured. It sounds like they're going to try really hard to win in this window, which means they have to get a goalie. And if you believe the media narrative, they have to get tougher. And I'm not exactly sure what that looks like, but they're currently bottom of their division, which is obviously nowhere near they want to be this season if they're really in their win-now moment. They did beat the Penguins on Saturday night, and they'll play the Blue Jackets before they come to town on Saturday. Moving on to down the road, talking about what's going on in Rochester, things have not been going exactly swimmingly. However, there is some good news in that the city of Rochester Arena, um, which is a group or an affiliate of the Pagula Sports Enterprise, have announced that they have an agreement to manage Blue Cross Arena for 15 years, effective this January 1st through December 31st, 2033. So it's a 15-year deal, and the agreement with PSE um, that was currently in place was kind of a placeholder contract uh, when the Pagulas bought out the contract from the previous tenant. The deal was set to expire this month, and this should be great news as long as the Pagulas are committed to getting Blue Cross Arena what it needs. And we've talked several times about many of the issues that need to be addressing, and they aren't minor. They have brought in a new center monitor and a new scoreboard, as well as flat screen monitors, which were about 15 years too late. However, there are several issues with seating, bathrooms, and overall appeal of the interior that need serious attention, and none of those will be cheap. But it's good and reassuring to see the Pagulas invest in the long-term future of the Rochester Americans. There has been some fan concern about what the Bagula's plan for the Amherst would be and whether or not they were going to keep them in Rochester. This is a good sign. 
Some rough news, uh, Kyle Criscola was moved to the IR and is declared week-to-week with an upper body injury, and their two outings this weekend were were rough ones. They won one nothing in an absolute snooze against the Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins on Friday. Victor Olofsson had the goal. It was a little bit of a, uh, a hammer in after a little bit of a scrum, and my crew and I left the game after the second period to go watch the Sabres game. There just wasn't much going on. It was really a flat affair. They weren't playing well. Neither team was really playing well. And they took that to a team who had been playing well against the Binghamton uh, Devils on Saturday where the Amherst lost 3 nothing, And they were outshot 38-22 to in that one. It seems like things are kind of coming off the rails in Rochester a little bit. They really need to regroup and rediscover that mojo that had them playing so well to start the season. Um, Something that's kind of interesting is that the Syracuse Crunch started the season horribly and are now right on the tails of Rochester after their horrible start, possibly illustrating a... An, an outstanding ascendancy from the Syracuse Crunch, but also the fact that things are really not going as planned in Rochester lately. Moving on to around town, um, the big news of the NHL, William Nylander finally gets his deal, and we can calm down now. And it's just a sign of how good Toronto is. Like we talked about, they're top of the NHL standings. They've done that missing Nylander for this entire season, and they've missed Austin Matthews for over a month with a shoulder injury and still find themselves top of the NHL standings. Other news around the NHL world, uh, Shea Weber is back after his knee injury that kept him out for almost a year, and he scored twice against the Rangers on Saturday. One was a classic blast on the point, and the other was a breakaway wrister that was rather unlike anything I remember seeing Shea Weber score. He's one of my favorite players in the league to watch play, and it's awesome to see him back and being successful. Last bit of news, the Sharks are dangerously close to falling out of a playoff spot in the West, and after a fairly strong start, they're 4-4-2 in their last 10, and they are third in their Pacific Division that's widely known to be a bit of a tire fire. They're barely in that third-place spot right ahead of Vegas, and the wildcard spots for the West are actually occupied by teams in the Central Division who are ahead of them in the standings. And so in the terms for the Sabres, here's something that's kind of interesting to think about. We've been lauding the Sabres and their possession of two additional first-round picks at the end of this draft. The Sabres, Sabres fans might need to start reckoning with the fact that we might not see those picks in this draft. It's entirely possible that the Blues, given the start of their season, will have a top 10 pick, which means they have the option to defer the pick they're giving the Sabres to the next draft because it's top 10 protected. And the Sharks, with their struggles, if they miss the playoffs and end up with a lottery pick, there's actually no opportunity for them to defer. That pick is not theirs in any capacity because they traded a lottery part of that pick to Ottawa in part of the Eric Carlson trade. So it's a really complicated one where if the Sharks 2019 first round pick is a lottery pick, it goes to Ottawa. If it's not a lottery pick, it goes to the Sabres. And so here, I mean, we started the season and we were absolutely nailed on certain positive that we were going to have three first round picks in the 2019 draft. 
We're now looking at the situation, and it's really highly likely that the Sabres will only be taking their own first pick this draft. They're still going to get those picks. They're just not going to get them, I think, when we thought they would get them, or it's very possible that they won't get them when we thought they would get them. Something kind of interesting with two teams that were just nailed on to be favorites and contenders this year who are really struggling to make it happen so far this season. Moving on to our mailbag to round out the show. And remember, you can tweet us in at ICGAW on Twitter. You can also email us at ickgawpod at gmail.com. This one was emailed in from Eric, and it says, Hey, Jay, just heard about heard the most recent podcast, and it was funny because I thought about joking with you about the name change to It Can't Get Any Better like some of the others, but I didn't because I don't want you to change it. I want it to stay. It can't get any worse because when you started the podcast, it couldn't get any worse, but with each episode, it has gotten better. So maybe you are the good luck charm. Keep the name all through the episode, or all throughout this decade of dominance we are about to embark on. That way, we will be reminded of where we came from. Anyway, I have a question about Skinner. It's not so much about the financials, since I think he will end up getting about an eight-year, $8 million deal from us, although with the cap expanding, I think even 8.5 is doable. It's definitely more than Kane's $7 million, but less than the 9 to 9.5, at which he's starting to ask. My question is just about the fit. I think it's perfect. Jack has never had a scorer like him, and he's never had a setup guy like Jack. He's never he's wasn't having the fun in Carolina like he is now. It is close to home and the Leafs cannot afford him. So this is as close as I think will it, it will get, I think. He will put up 500 plus goals if he finishes his career here. He can be a part of something that looks like it is going to be huge. I think if there were future contracts on the team like stocks and commodities, Buffalo's 3-year futures would be among the highest, wouldn't you say? Anyhow, given all this, He has three questions. A, is there another team with available cap space that can offer these things, like an elite center, bright franchise future, etc.? B, do you know enough about Skinner to know if these things will matter to him, or is it just about the money? Because I'm guessing that he gets to UFA. If he gets to UFA, someone will give him 9 to 9.5 million, although I will ask your opinion on this as well. C, do you think a rework of Jack to work Skinner in a la Kane and Taves is a possibility? Thanks and sorry if this looks like an SAT question. So, Eric, thank you so much for all of your questions. Um, I agree. I don't see Skinner coming in at not, or sorry, I see Skinner coming in at 9 to 9.5. I don't see the Sabres or really anybody agreeing to give him 9 to 9.5. We'll talk about that in a second. Up for the first question is, are there any teams that you think would be offered to or able to offer these items going forward? And the first team that I actually thought about is another divisional rival, and it's the Canadians. And if they think they are ready to start going for it now and that they aren't going to commit to a rebuild, it seemed like they they were unsure of what they were going to be this season, so they went young and fast, and they took Jesperi Kotkaniemi, who has been, I think, better than expected when they made that pick. And if they could make those finances for acquiring Jeff Skinner work, maybe that could be something that would be appealing to him. They do have other great center talent with guys like Johnny Drewen. They The Max Domi trade is really working out well for them. 
I'm not sure if it's somewhere that would be appealing for him. They also aren't exactly rolling in cap space with some of their well-documented decisions to trade for Shea Weber and give Price his albatross $10.5 million a year contract forever. But I immediately thought of the Canadians as someone who would tick a lot of the boxes for a team that could possibly be in the ascendancy in the next couple of years. Are they in a better spot than the Sabres? I don't think so, but it's a possibility that that could be something they're looking at. I also thought of the Flyers as a team that might be interested in a guy like Jeff Skinner and might appeal to Jeff Skinner. Um, mainly thinking that Wayne Simmons' contract is up this year, and if the Flyers are really into winning in this window, they might be willing to double down on this core and go for it. That said, they did just hand James Van Riemsdyk a 7-on-7 this last window, or this last offseason, but I I think it's possible that the Flyers could be someone who'd be interested. Here's the deal, though. I, I think Buffalo, or I think what Buffalo had going for it for Jeff Skinner when he decided to come to Buffalo and wave his no movement clause is exactly still what it has going for him and for it here has that excellent young rising core has elite center talent. And like Eric mentioned in his question, it's close for home for him. I heard somewhere, I think it was on the instigators that Skinner's family used to make games in Carolina only on rare occasions. It was an ordeal for them to get there, stay there, etc. But apparently, there have been a few family members at almost every game, and that was one of the significant reasons for why he came. Might be one of the significant reasons for why he stays, is that he did grow up in the Toronto area, which is where most of his family seems to be now. Buffalo being so close has been so convenient for him. That said, Montreal can offer something like that if that is one of the main significant items for why he wants to stick around. Um... Moving on to the next question about reworking Jack's contract or trying to fit Skinner's contract into some part of that. I don't think so. Um, And I think that by the end of Jack's contract, Jack's contract actually won't be that bad with the cap rising and what Jack Eichel has shown so far this season and what he might be capable of producing in, in the future. I think that's a significant item to think about. But Here's the other item where I don't think the Kane-Taves comparison is applicable. Jeff Skinner is not Patrick Kane, and it's something that's kind of been bugging me about Jeff Skinner. He's a lethal finisher when he's given the chance, but look at his goals this season and look at his goals across his career and tell me how many goals he's manufactured completely on his own. For being an incredible skater, so, so many of his goals come from doing the dirty work around the front of the net. That's not necessarily a criticism that you need players who are going to be good at that, but I'm thinking that that inability to manufacture some of his own chances on a regular basis and the fact that he has always been a bit of a streaky player is going to hurt him a bit in these contract negotiations. I would love an 8 by 8 contract for the Sabres, especially considering that he's only 26, that like, I mean, the first half of that contract is in the absolute prime of his career, and it would really probably only start to suck in the last three years of that contract, unlike this Kyle Ocposo contract that I think is going to start to hurt a lot sooner than that. I would live with 8.5, but I really wouldn't want to see that happen. I mean, Eric, I'm sorry, I don't know that I'm necessarily bringing anything new to the table. I think that the significant issues that you brought up 
top-line center talent, rising young core, and being close to home for Jeff Skinner, those are the three items that I think are going to be significant for for him. If there's something else on the table, if he wants to join more of a win-now team, maybe he looks somewhere else like a uh, Winnipeg if they could make it work, or maybe he looks somewhere else like a... Um, like, I don't even know, maybe a Vegas. I don't see them having the cap space after giving Pacioretty his new contract, but maybe he looks for more of an absolute win now situation. But I think if he sticks around, he's going to see a win now situation in Buffalo very soon. I mean, there, here's another reason why I think that Skinner won't come in or won't get that kind of money that he's asking for in Buffalo, on top of being streaky, on top of being a slightly limited player, I think teams are not going to make the error of other team, make the errors of other team after watching what's happened in Chicago and Edmonton. And Edmonton in particular, you look at that Dreitseidel contract, you look at that Lucic contract, those are teams that got really excited about what they thought they had or what they thought they could get, and now it's crucifying them at the moment and so I don't think Buffalo with their rising core with guys that they're going to have to pay in the near future like Middlestat depending on his trajectory like Darlene depending on his trajectory like possibly Tage Thompson depending on his trajectory like Linus Allmark depending on his trajectory they've got guys coming up that need to be paid and I think there are two priorities to this Jeff Skinner situation for Jason Botterill number one getting him to sign or getting the best deal possible if they pitch him at the deadline. And number two, not shackling the future for this one attractive player that they currently have in their organization. They they should not, under any circumstance, overpay Skinner. Don't shackle yourself to this particular player. Is he awesome so far this season? Has he been awesome so far this season? Yes, That said, I think this is his absolute ceiling. I think we're going to see a quiet part of this season. And when they sit down after break, or after break, after after Christmas, which seems to be the rumored time when they're going to sit down, I think they're going to have long conversations about how this period of play for Jeff Skinner is not the norm for him. He's been incredible, but it's not something that he's produced regularly on a regular basis. And so... I don't think he's going to be paid like that as we go forward. Eric, thank you so much for your slew of questions. It was wonderful to read everything you had to say. Remember, if guys, if you want to email them in or tweet them in, you can find us at ickgaw on Twitter. You can also email us at ickgawpod at gmail.com. Folks, thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed today's show, please like and subscribe and drop us a five-star review. Remember, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you find your podcasts. We'll be coming at you next week to recap another difficult week for the Sabres. Keep those heads up, Sabres fans. It's been really good, and it might not get much better. But remember, it can't get any worse. We'll see you guys soon. Kick in to Oposo. Oposo hanging on to it back at the point. Oposo drops it off in the corner to Eichel. Eichel buzzing around. Eichel in the second lane. Score!